Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. is the 10th of May, 2022. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If uh, if you were not here during the first hour, um, I am welcoming pictures this morning on the text line of your fur babies who might be listening with you right now. So a quick good morning shout out to Gracie um, and to Paisley who have, who's, you know, people have texted their pictures in. So love to hear from you. 877-933-2484. Every conversation is a theological conversation. Every single one. Every conversation that you're going to have today is a theological conversation. And if you doubt me, then I want you to be listening more closely to the words that people use to describe things and the words that people lay claim to in the midst of the conversations of the day. So there was a word used yesterday that caught my attention in relationship to uh, describing how uh, protesters, uh, those protesting the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade by action of the Supreme Court, um, how they are behaving. Because the uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, used a term to describe those uh, abortion advocates, and she used a term that is expressly theological. She used the term righteous. She claimed that Um, What these people are doing is an expression of righteous anger. Here's the quote. Uh, While we have seen and heard extraordinary anguish in our communities, we have been moved by how so many have channeled their righteous anger into meaningful action, planning to march and mobilize to make their voices heard. You can read it on her website uh, if if you want to. Righteous anger. So I thought, you know what, let's pause and let's talk about the term righteous. Let's talk about righteousness. Let's talk about what it means um, and who is really in a position to claim it. So to be righteous is not just to be right, but to be right morally, to be right about things that have moral weight. So righteous anger then is understood as an expression of righteous moral judgment, literally um, to be right in terms of that which is moral, based on some principle that's just derived from eternal truth. It's not a righteousness in your own eyes. It is righteous, right before God, in right standing. Think about that. And then think about uh, the way this term is being applied. Nancy Pelosi describes herself as a, quote, good Catholic, and she used the term righteous to describe the people who disrupted mass at St. Patrick's in New York City on Mother's Day. What is righteousness? Who is righteous? And what does it mean to describe a person as expressing righteous anger and expressing it in a way that is righteous? 
I want you to do a word study in the Bible of the term righteous or righteousness. You're going to find it in Genesis 6, 9, where Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God. The next person who's described as righteous is Abraham. His faith in God is credited to him as righteousness. You're going to see David described as righteous. You're going to see a lot of references to righteousness in the wisdom literature, particularly Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Um, What does it mean to be righteous and who stands righteous? Well, not one, literally not one. All have sinned and fall short of the righteousness required to stand before God. And so put as simply as possible, Jesus alone is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Jesus stands righteous before God. And then his righteousness is imputed to those who believe and receive God's grace offered in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the key verse here. For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a theological term. To be righteous is a, a theological claim. Spend some time today thinking about righteousness and righteous anger and its right place and right expression in the conversation about abortion in America today. Dr. Brett Nix joins us next from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to talk about a range of healthcare headlines. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This morning, uh, back again this morning, Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Brett, welcome back. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you this morning? I am I am well. It is well with my soul. People are texting in pictures of their fur babies. It's making me quite happy. Oh, that is awesome. I tell you, I'm a big fur baby fan, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. How, how are the pets? Oh, they're great. Willow just turned two. That's our uh, our lab. And Moki, which is our, our rescue cat, is... Uh, is three, and they have not figured out who is the alpha female, but they both mm. uh, so at times believe that they are it. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's talk about the Omicron variant um, because, you know, we're facing reinfections. So talk, talk with us about the Omicron variant of COVID-19 and what it means for us. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? COVID-19, and here we are in 2022, only a couple of years down the road, but uh We've all seen trauma. We've all had challenges. And if you watch the news at all, you hear about the variants. You know, we look at South Africa right now. They have a a variant BA4 and BA5 that is increasing in numbers. uh, But similar to what we've seen before, uh, the overall impact of it is not as devastating. However, it does have an increase of low-level illnesses like we see with the flu and otherwise. But here in the U.S., we continue down our our BA2 variant, and we've gone from our BA2 to now a BA2.12.1, and the numbers continue to increase. And what we see across the U.S. is that, yes, we're having increasing numbers of people that are seeing it now. In the emergency department where I work, I've seen a slight uptick in the amount of COVID that's coming in. But again, this is very, very small, and it's not burgeoning our hospital or healthcare systems. Uh, so that's a very positive thing. But what people really want to know is, what does this mean to me? And the thing that's fascinating is if we look back to Jan- December, January, when uh, the Omicron variant came out originally, about 70%, 60 to 70% of the U.S. population 
contracted it at some point, whether realized or not. And that's that's what the experts are saying at this point. The nice thing is um, it provides a substantial amount of protection. However, we know our immunity is incredibly well created. As we start to get to those three to four to five month windows, everybody's immune system acts a little bit differently. So the level of protection that you have continues to change. And what we know to be true is even if you had Omicron in December, it's possible that you can get reinfection. Uh, what does that mean for each one of us at this point in time? Uh, if you are somebody who is at risk, obviously the typical things that go uh, around for you, great hand washing precautions. Make sure that if you're out and about that you don't touch your face. Uh, so obviously the most common way of spreading it is touching a surface, touching your face and inoculating yourself. Um, and again, you know, those in general continue to say, well, we don't know the potential value of boosters now four to six months out and how good are the old boosters as it relates to these variants going forward. At that point, we really don't know. For the ones that should probably be considering this, it's those that are extreme of age and those that have those underlying health conditions that puts you at risk to have severe disease. Wow. Okay. Um, when we think about um, access to help, like, right, and when you're talking about people of extreme age, I guess one of the things yeah. that comes to mind here is, you know, who's going to come help people in their homes? Um, some of us are in a position to go and do that for our elderly parents, but that's not true of everyone. Um, and you uh, you alerted me to this concern about a home health uh, shortage. T- talk with us yeah. about that. Boy, you know, you, you're, you're talking about something that is going to be really critical for most of us. So whether we have uh, aging parents, whether we're aging ourselves, uh, what we've recognized is we have an increasing number of seniors. I think the statistics right now say that uh, by 2050, uh, there's going to be an increase of 30 percent of those over the age of 60. So over the next 20 to 30 years, we continue to have you know, the boomers shifting through the next population moving into this space and also those with disabilities. They would prefer to stay home than rather than live in a perhaps a long term care facility unless the level of care needs are are increased to that level. The problem with that, though, is uh, concurrent at the same time. We don't have the labor pool necessary uh, for those that can actually provide home health services and personal care aids. Uh, And we also know because simple stuff like we've seen with COVID and everything else, our supply and demand, when there's not a supply and the demand goes up, the costs go with it. And so we have a tremendous number of people that are seniors and those with disabilities that want to stay home, but the home health aides are just not available. And it's actually predicted to be one of the fastest growing professions nationwide in the coming decade. Uh, the challenge with that, however, is for those right now who want to stay in this home environment. And why would you want to stay home? Because it's something that you know. It's a sense of peace. It's a place that brings so many memories and so many things that are positively held uh, versus going to perhaps a small apartment or studio in a long-term care facility. Yes, there's a community sense there, but those in these home health environments, uh, in the absence of the aids that we have uh, to be able to assist them, it's very, very challenging. And many situations, especially for those that are dedicated to Medicare and or Medicaid, even without uh, a supplement, they may not be able to afford to actually have good quality uh, home health care. So we've got a bit of a challenge that we're facing, and we're hoping that those that are training to become home health aides and step into this growing profession can do so before uh, we outstretch the numbers that we have right now. Uh, huge opportunity there for uh, for the church. So I'll just uh, I'll just say that as a reflection on that conversation. Hey, we're talking with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. When we come back, I'm going to have him reflect on teenagers who are um, spending an awful lot of time in emergency rooms across the country. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. All right, Nick, first of all, um, you know, remind us what the emergency room is really for, and then talk with us about what's happening across the country um, because there's a lack of inpatient psychiatric services. Apparently, lots of teenagers are spending lots of time in the ER. You know, Carmen, I love my job. I uh, have the best job in the world. I get to take care of the acute and the emergent conditions across the entire spectrum of healthcare. Uh, and I get to see every patient, regardless of their ability to pay, uh, their background, their economic status, anything, doesn't matter. You come and see me, and yeah, you're not excited to see me, although I may be excited to see you. Uh, and so that's the beauty of my specialty, which is to identify those that are critically ill, those that are sick, that require hospital-level care and specialty-level care beyond uh, the stabilization that I provide, but then those also that I can provide some hope and send them home uh, with a care plan that's in place. But as you ascribed, oh my goodness gracious, look what happened over the last decade. We have a national epidemic that I think, to be quite honest, I call the forgotten population, and that is those with mental health issues. And this is not just uh, based on adults. We've known this to be true. Uh, and really from an adult population, if you think back to the economic decline of 2008, the number of people who lost their jobs, lost their insurance, the stress, the anxiety that goes with that, that lead many people into substance abuse issues or the stressors that trigger maybe underlying mental health challenges, or they lost their insurance and couldn't afford their medications any longer, the adult population has exploded as far as those that come into the emergency department seeking mental health care. But as you ascribed, we're talking about kids. Uh, mental health disorders among adolescents, the literature suggests that really we have seen this explosion from 2007. And I find it fascinating. I want you to think back. Yes, we had the economic decline in 2007, but around 2008, 2010, what did we have? We had the explosion of social media. And in that process, we created now a society that's become digitally dependent. And what we know to be true about social media is everything that people see presents somebody on their highlight reel, when in reality, that's not who people are. And we've created fear, we've created anxiety, which has led to issues of depression. And one of the challenges concurrently with that is I think we've led into something that uh, we all would agree, parenting is really, really, really difficult. But digital parenting does not allow for good behavioral management of your kids. And so when I look at the emergency department on a daily basis, in the adult side, I may have up to 30 or 40% of my beds occupied by adult patients with psychiatric or behavioral substance abuse problems that I can't send anywhere. And in our pediatric emergency departments, the same exact thing. We actually have had to convert in our, in our space, one of our adult areas where we will board our psychiatric patients to accommodate additional kids because we have a growing rate. And in the pediatric space, a lot of these again are behavioral, less psychiatric, but we're still seeing elevated suicide rates. Uh, they continue to climb over the last couple of years. And as you pointed out, Normally we had uh, back, oh shoot, probably a good decade ago, uh, a number of residential treatment facilities for people under the age of 18. It continued to decline because there wasn't a large growing need uh, prior to 2010, it had stabilized. Uh, then comes social media and the growth of our digital age. And now we've had this con continuous uh, uh, incline. And now we see, we see kids in the emergency department, adults in the emergency department, not in measure of hours after, after evaluation and the need for placement, but on the measure of days, sometimes weeks, we've even had patients that are adult patients because they are geriatric, they have dementia, and they're aggressive. Sometimes we struggle with placing them not just in days or weeks, but in months to get them out of the emergency department. Here's a space created for stabilization of an emergent condition, never for inpatient boarding of patients. And so what we have now is patients who are coming in seeking help in a space that can provide stabilization, 
but cannot provide them the resources that they need on a daily basis. And yet we continue to ignore this on a national level. It's amazing. The numbers are really uh, um, staggering. Um, I mean, the it, the adult population crisis is one thing. Um, the article that uh, that I'm looking at here in the New York Times focuses on juveniles. It's talking about, you know, uh, they surveyed 88 pediatric hospitals around the country and found that 87 of them regularly board children and adolescents overnight in the ER for an average of 48 hours. Um, at least a thousand young people, but as many as five thousand young people, are boarding every night in the nation's four thousand emergency departments. So we're talking about um, spaces that are not designed for juvenile psychiatric care. Um, and the article talks about you know how those spaces are, you know, sort of I guess made clinically appropriate for that kind of use. I mean, everything sure. is taken out except the bed, essentially. Um, but they they have access to nothing and they have no interaction. And I can't I mean, it's like solitary confinement. That's what it looks like. And I'm thinking to myself, that can't be a positive mental health approach. Um, but then again, they're receiving it in the emergency room and the emergency room's not designed to be a therapeutic psychiatric environment. That's exactly right. It's it's challenging. These these beds that you're talking about, they are bolted to the floor so someone can't pick them up and throw them. And you're right. You're in an, what appears to be an isolation room, and most rooms are that, or it's an emergency department room that was designed, and you have a garage door that pulls down and, and blocks all the medical gases and anything that puts somebody at risk uh, for you know, what we call a ligature risk, or the ability to hurt themselves, harm themselves, or hang themselves. And you know the challenge that we see is it's one thing in this study that you could describe the 30, pardon me, the 88 pediatric hospitals. But we have pediatric patients that are boarding in all of the community hospitals around the country. That's not uncommon. It doesn't have to be at a children's center to see this. Um, and the challenge, again, gets back to the, the greater question, Carmen. It's one thing to address the issue at hand. It's another to ask the question, why are we heading this way as a society? Mm. What are the underlying things that we are or are not doing correctly? You know, where's hope coming from for these kids? What are they looking toward? What is it that they're seeking in this process? Uh, and I think that in, under, in that underlying question, that's how we make the change. In the interim time, we have to ask the question, how can we do better? Uh, the, the typical answer is, well, if we don't have an answer, send them to the emergency department. They'll figure it out. Well, you mm -hmm. know what? That only works so far, but unfortunately, it outstrips the resources for people who have uh, urgent needs from trauma, from stroke, from heart attacks. Uh, when you have almost all of your capacity occupied by psychiatric orders in an environment that's not established for them, it puts the nurses at risk. It puts the doctors at risk. It puts the patients at risk. Uh, and many times what you'll find is a mass exodus of people from emergency spaces saying, hey, this isn't the job I signed up for. This isn't what I'm trained to do. I need to go someplace else. And so we're starting to see a lot of this trickle down effect that is really concerning. But again, I beg the question, where are we as a society that's driving us to this level of issues with anxiety and depression and fear? Uh, and how do we confront that? How do we address this on a on a much more uh, holistic basis? And I, and I think you know, for me, obviously, as a man of faith, I know where that stands for me. Uh, and I don't know that everybody shares that on a societal perspective. Uh, but we each, each of us have to have to believe in something, stand for something and have hope, because in the absence of hope, depression, anxiety and fear are overwhelming. I think this is a subject we're going to have to return to, because I think that's a um, that's a conversation that we have to be having not only as individuals and as families, but as the community of Christians in the in the culture and 
and as the church. So um, thank you for teeing that up. Let's take a minute and talk about the power of a cup of tea at the end of the day. I tell you, I don't know about you, but I, my day starts out with a cup of coffee. But uh, mm-hmm. it's funny because this article's come out, and really over the last year, my afternoon ends up being a tea. Uh, and there's some really good studies that have come out. And for those of you who are doing tea, yes, I live in North Carolina, and down here, if it's not sweet, people aren't drinking it. That's not what we're talking about because that's hypertension, that's diabetes, that's bad dental decay. So we won't go down that pathway. But for what most people didn't realize is tea, and this could be green tea, this could be black tea. Um, include these things called flavonoids. Uh, Yes, there's a little bit of caffeine in black tea and green teas as well, but these flavonoids really are antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. And what they have found in this process is for those that drink somewhere between two to four cups of tea a day. Now, keep in mind, most people, a single cup is actually equivalent to two cups of tea. So if you're drinking, uh, you know, 10 or 12 ounces of tea in the afternoon, um, what they ended up finding is if you do this over duration of time, especially as you age, your cognitive capacity remains intact and your cognitive decline as you age is actually uh, decreased substantially. And what you'll find is, yeah, the caffeine may give you a little bit of a pickup, but it's not as strong per se as going out and having espresso or things along those lines. But these flavonoids presented in this tea present protection against the common age-related issues that we see. And perhaps there's a benefit here that decreases the likelihood of, of, of as you age, setting into uh, issues with dementia. Now, wouldn't that be amazing if that were true? So uh, more to come on totally this. I amazing. think this, this study is great. Uh, one other thing about this, though, uh, there's a, another chemical in the tea. Uh, theanine, as it's known, is also known to uh, not just enhance attention and not cause the jitters of caffeine, but also has a component of reducing anxiety and stress. As your day progresses, I know a lot of people feel a lot of stress if, uh, if you don't have the ability to take a mindfulness moment. Uh, so perhaps a cup of tea might be just what the doctor is ordered. Amen. Amen. Well, doctor, thank you so much. That's Dr. Brett Nix. You can find him at the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, Brett, we look forward to talking with you again. Thanks, Carmen. Always Absolutely. We'll be right back. Picture me up on your knee. Just tea for two and two for tea. Just... Every year, the American Bible Society conducts a State of the Bible Research Project, Uh, John Plake from the American Bible Society joins us next to give us some of the key findings of the 2022 State of the Bible Report. Where in the Word are you today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. John Plake joins us now from the American Bible Society. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's great to be with you again. All right. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Talk with us about the 12th uh, annual State of the Bible Report from the American Bible Society. What did you learn? Well, you know, we had some really surprising findings. When we collected our data in January, one of the things that immediately stood out to us was scripture engagement and really engagement with the Bible kind of fell off a cliff in America. And we were really puzzled at what was happening because we had seen some mild rebounding last year and some real signs of hope. And now in 2022, things were just so different. In fact, historically different. Uh, For instance, just 
asking how many people in America use the Bible, they read the Bible or they listen to the Bible at all. That percentage has been around 50% of America uses the Bible at least some during the year. But this year, we saw that fall to 39%, the lowest number that we had ever seen before. Not only that, we saw that one in five people who had been scripture engaged in 2021 were no longer scripture engaged in 2022. The size of the curiously exploring group of people, this group we call the movable middle that interact with the Bible at least sometimes, that dropped by two in five. So 40% decrease in the size of that group from 95 million down to 66 million. So it was a real uh, kick in the gut for the Bible Society to be able to look at these numbers and say, wow, Americans are really struggling in some uh, important ways, and we need to be there to respond to them and to help them re-engage with God's Word. I'm going to read two of those points again, um, because sometimes, you know, it takes us hearing something twice to really get it. Um, but define scripture engagement before I read the sentence about scripture engagement being at a historic low, because scripture engagement is different than, you know, I'm reading the verse of the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we all, of course, know that engaging deeply with the Bible in a transformative way begins with reading it or at least listening to it. Not everyone can read. Some people are visually impaired and they they're going to engage with the Bible through sound. Um, but nevertheless, they're going to interact with the text of Scripture, and that's the beginning of the journey. But Scripture engagement for us is a consistent interaction with the Bible that shapes people's choices and transforms their relationships with God, with themselves, and with others. So it is that more holistic interaction with Scripture that's making a difference in somebody's life. All right. So with that in mind, Scripture engagement is at a historic low in America, registering uh, now at just 19% of American adults. Um, in the past year, nearly 26 million Americans decreased or stopped interacting with the Scriptures. Uh, it's, it's pretty stunning. I mean, do you have any, anything to which you are attributing this? We do. You know, the first thing we did, because we're researchers and we're social scientists and we don't like these kinds of big jarring changes. In fact, we doubt them intrinsically. And so we dug in and we thought there's something wrong with the data. And so we did all of our data checks and made sure that that wasn't the case. That was kind of bad news. We hoped there'd be a problem with the study, but there wasn't. In fact, we had independently replicated it at the, the same time as a check on our data. And so we knew it was right because both studies showed the same thing, though they were independent of one another. So then we dug into, well, did, did we compute something incorrectly? Because there's some math involved in figuring out these numbers. And nope, the math turned out to be right. And finally, what we did is we began to dig into the actual questions that we were asking. There are 14 different questions that go into measuring scripture engagement. And here's what we discovered. We discovered that what was changing was people's, how the Bible was influencing people's feelings and behaviors toward others within the past month. So people still read the Bible and felt connected to God, but what they didn't feel was connected to others. And that was really interesting uh, because as we looked at those numbers, in fact, we saw that there was like six times larger change in the way people related to others as a result of Scripture compared to every other thing in the way we measure scripture engagement. And what we realized is we were collecting data in the last three weeks of January, and a lot of things were going on in the last three weeks of January, but one of the big ones 
was the Omicron variant was surging across some of the places in America where um, the Bible is is most a part of people's lives. And so we realized that what was happening was people weren't being able to live out their faith in response to scripture because they were separated from one another and they were separated from church and they were reading the Bible and saying, what am I supposed to do in response to scripture? And they couldn't find an outlet for their faith. And so for many of them, they began to kind of gradually set the Bible aside, maybe waiting for a different day, maybe waiting for a better day that we all hope will come. When we talk about, um, we're again, we're talking with uh, John Plake. He is the Director of Ministry Intelligence for the American Bible Society. We're talking about the findings of the State of the Bible 2022 report. You can find what we're talking about and lots of other resources at stateofthebible.org. Um, John, when you when you consider these findings, um, and then you like turn toward Christians, you turn toward the church, and you say, "Here is an opportunity," because there's a lot. There are a lot of people who indicate that they are curious, and yet um, a deplorably low percentage of people who are scripturally engaged. I see the church opportunity at the intersection of those two realities. I think you're exactly right, Carmen. The The reality is sometimes we look at this like the glass is half full, but I think it taught us two really important lessons. And one of them is we don't control what's happening in people's lives. We respond to what's happening in people's lives with the hope that comes from God's word. So you think about a pandemic. Is there anything we could have done to change the way that disrupted people's lives? Perhaps not. But what we can do is we can be there for the 66 million American adults who are curiously exploring scripture and are in that movable middle category. These are people who are extremely curious, like 97% of them say they're curious to know more about what the Bible says or about who Jesus is. And they're looking to the church to be able to connect God's word to the questions that they have in their own lives and the experiences that they're having today. So my feeling is if we can respond to 66 million American adults with God's word and do that really well, well, then we'll leave it in God's hands to bring us the next 66 million. And that'll be great. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. The the first 66 million keep us pretty busy. So, yeah. So that's good. Um, we're going to uh, continue this conversation in just a moment. We're going to turn to chapter two of the findings in the State of the Bible 2022 report. You can find it at stateofthebible.org. Um, I'm going to tee this part of the conversation up this way. You know, back in the day, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. What does uh, the State of the Bible Report 2022 tell us about the faith as maybe it is passed along through our moms? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with John Plake from the American Bible Society, we're talking about some findings from the State of the Bible 2022 um, research project and report. You can find it at stateofthebible.org. John, uh, how much did you find out or how relevant is a mother's faith? 
You know, it's extremely important. What we discovered is that for the vast majority of Americans, their faith is the same as their mother's faith was when they were 10 years old. So that scripture that you quoted right before the break was just so relevant. In fact, it was uh, it was the scripture that I used in my ordination sermon. So that was a long, long time ago, but it took me back to those to those years. And I'm like so many Americans. I have a mom and a mother-in-law. Both are women of great faith. I have grandmothers who are women of great faith, and they have had a tremendous influence on me. In fact, um, what we've discovered is that about two-thirds of Americans would say that their religious faith is the same as their mother's was when they were 10 years old. And then we also looked at, well, how, for those who say that's not true, for those who disagree with that statement and say my faith has changed, where are they changing to? And and that's really, really where the bad news in this story is. And that's because 74% of people who say they have no religious faith, they are atheist, agnostic, or just none, they have no religious faith at all, um, they would say that their faith is different than their mother's. So what we don't know, and we kind of regret this about the study, we didn't ask, what was your mother's faith when you were 10 years old? So look for that next year. We're going to be doing a little bit deeper dive into the influence of parents in coming years. But what we found is that for many moms uh, who were religious, their children have become less religious than they are. But when we look at faith in the Christian church and different expressions and traditions within the Christian church, uh, evangelical Protestants are actually doing the best because they, they are the destination for people who have changed their faith since they were 10 years old. And so 31% of evangelical Protestants actually come from a different faith background. Um, 24% of mainline Protestants, 20% of historically black Protestants, and 14% of Catholics. So it tells us a little bit about this persistent influence of moms on our lives and how their faith tends to be lived out through us. Hmm. I guess uh, the song that comes to mind would be the faith of our fathers, but we need one that's the faith of our mothers. Um, When you're talking about 10-year-olds, you're talking about fifth graders, sometimes third or fourth graders. And so if you're listening right now and you're thinking about ministry opportunities, um, how are you investing in moms of third to fifth graders? And, and, and moms of younger children, right? We're talking about a faith that's cultivated over time. Um, so where are those moms when, they're, when their kids are in third, fourth, and fifth grade? And, and how robust is our ministry to moms? Um, not just, you know, moms in traditional families, as we might think of them, but single moms. So you've got opportunities this summer to think about um, moms and to think about uh, how the faith is going to be cultivated in the next generation. So maybe during your vacation Bible school, or maybe during some other summer expression of faith experience, you want to particularly emphasize a ministry to moms of uh, school-age children as an opportunity here to, um, you know, to cultivate the faith in the future. John, as you look at uh, the 2022 State of the Bible report, and again, you guys can find it at stateofthebible.org, um, I'm wondering if there are other things that stand out to you that we're looking forward to uh, learning more about as you release them over the course of the next few weeks. 
Yeah, there certainly are. You know, we do a deep dive on moms. And I think one thing before we leave that is we look at scripture engagement for moms and mm. emotional health for moms and whether they're mm. flourishing or not. And this is an interesting finding this year. And I, I want to call this out to people in the church who are trying to minister to moms, because what we discovered in 2022 is that moms who have children at home who are under the age of 18, they are not doing as well as they have been in the past. Traditionally, moms with children at home have higher levels of engagement with God's word than do women without children at home. But what we discovered is there's a big gap this year in 2022. Only 15% of moms with children at home have uh, show up as scripture engaged, while 24% of women without children at home are scripture engaged. Now, what that means is moms are under a lot of stress right now. And anything that we can do to be helping them is really going to pay off in the long run. In fact, our profile of moms shows that moms are in the highest stress category of any group of people in America at this very moment. Now, in we've done a lot in the first two chapters to look at some bad news. Scripture reading down, scripture engagement down, moms struggling to a certain degree to engage with God's word. But coming up next month, we're going to be releasing a look at human flourishing. And the news is amazing because what we discover is though many people are struggling to connect with God's word, when they do, everything changes. We notice their stress levels go down, their hope levels going up, and their overall flourishing life is just on a rocket ship ride. So uh, there is great reason for us to lean into God's word, great reason for us to kind of renew our commitment to pick the Bible up off the nightstand and open it up and seek God's word, his hope, his help, and his comfort, because when we do that, we all flourish and do better. Okay, well, we're definitely looking forward then to chapter three um, of the State of the Bible 2022 report from the American Bible Society. You can find the American Bible Society at AmericanBible.org and the State of the Bible report specifically at StateOfTheBible.org. Um, John, let's um, let's let's circle back to sort of the trends over time for just a moment because I think that when we when we think about our own experience with scripture and we think about our own scripture engagement, I mean, certainly it doesn't surprise me that as we become more engaged with the scripture, we you know we know more of the secret of being content in all circumstances. We have a a deeper peace that surpasses understanding. I mean, like like there is a there is a hope to which we are anchored, and we recognize um, a, a different perspective, and we see things from a different perspective. Like we literally see things differently um, when we're scripture engaged than when we're not. I'm wondering if over time, as you consider the trends, um, there's there's something there for us to consider um, as Christians in the culture today, just in terms of applying um, what you know from having asked these questions over and over again. Uh, I mean, is there something there that you can point to for us? And I, I don't have a specific thing in mind here. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm fishing. I, it's a great fishing question. I think if I had to put my finger on it, here's what I would say. America in many ways, is becoming increasingly divided, or you might use the word tribal. And our political affiliations, our preferences, all of these kinds of things are tending to send everybody to their own corner, 
rather than drawing them together and uniting them. And I think one of the things that we are missing is that unified narrative that comes from scripture that says we are all, all of us, every American created by God in his image. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And there is something that draws us together as a people. Not only that, there is a future and there's a hope that isn't something that we have to manufacture or have to be in charge of, but God is at work among people. I think when we lose track of that biblical narrative, hopeless things, difficult things become hopeless and hopelessness deepens and there's no way out of it. So I think uh, of the Psalm that says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the King of glory will come in. There's this sense that we need to call to America to lift up our eyes and look beyond our current circumstances to find ourselves in history, which is his story, and become part of that narrative that God has already laid out for us. Uh, my hope is that as people turn to scripture, they discover that there's something better for them tomorrow than they're experiencing today. Mm. I'm so glad I went fishing. Um, finding something better is uh, is right before us, and we do find it in the context of who God is and his perspective on the things of the world, and we gain access to all of that through a study of Scripture and our engagement with it. So, John, wow, thank you so much. We so appreciate you being here. I hope you'll come back. I'd love to hear more about what you learned about human flourishing um, as people do engage with the scriptures. So can we can we count on more conversations about the American Bible Society State of the Bible Report? I would be delighted to come back, Carmen. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. You can, uh, you can find um, the resources we discussed today at stateofthebible.org and obviously more about the Bible at americanbible.org. That's the American Bible Society. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, good morning to Jake the Therapy Dog in West Simsbury, Connecticut. Jake looks all outfitted for a day of ministry. Totally excited about that. Caroline texted in, um, how did the bat issue get resolved? Yes, for those of you who um, may have missed the conclusion of the bat conversation, um, the bat was captured successfully, extricated from the house uh, using kitchen tongs and a plastic bag. I don't highly recommend that for others, but it worked for me. The bat was then released into the wild and seemed utterly grateful uh, to be back outside. And I was certainly utterly grateful to God that the bat was no longer in the house. So there you go. Um, Twix is a rescue from Texas. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.